It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors, like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream, are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings, or the midnight munchies, yeah, You know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. This week on the takeout from the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin, retired Navy Admiral William McRaven. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I have a little bit of an echoey voice because I'm in a really special place, and this is a fantastic opportunity for the takeout. We're in Austin, Texas at the Texas Tribune Ideas Festival. I've got a live audience here at the Paramount Theater. Let's hear it. Fantastic opportunity for this program. What is this program each and every week? Well, we deal with politics, policy, and pop culture, but we have a very specific two rules for this show. We are relentlessly curious, and we are steadfastly not ideological. And what do I mean by that? We take voices from all sides of the political spectrum, and we bring them to our audience. Our guests are never edited. If we need to edit anything for time, it's always me. Our answers are full and complete, and there is never a disagreement or confrontation about context after the show. Why? Because each and every guest we book is allowed to speak freely and fully in whatever they want to say. So... Without further ado, let us tell you who our guest is this week here again at the Texas Tribune Ideas Festival. I'm deeply indebted to Evan Smith for bringing us here again at the Paramount Theater. One more time, live audience, I want to hear you. (laughs) Retired Navy Admiral William McRaven. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, Major. Thanks. Good to be here. So um, I just want to talk to you in general terms about the news atmosphere the country has been in uh, for the past couple of days. There's been an announcement by the House of Representatives of an impeachment inquiry. There's been a declassified summary of a phone call the president made with the new president of Ukraine. Your general observations about what you have seen and how you believe it does or does not comport with the activities of a president you've worked with before. Yeah, well, you know, I'm always quick to point out that uh, I had the great honor of working in, uh, in the Bush 43 White House uh, right after 9-11. Spent two years there on the National Security Council staff. And then obviously I was one of uh, President Obama's commanders, both as a three-star and a four-star. And, and I've told folks before, look, I didn't always agree uh, with, with every decision the president, either President Bush or President Obama made. Um, but uh, I can tell you that in both cases – the men upheld the dignity of the office of the President of the United States. And for a military officer, when you see, you know, good men, uh, good family men, men of, you know, great integrity and personal and professional courage, 
it is easy to follow men like that when they are making decisions uh, in the national interest. My concern with this president is uh, I don't know that the things that he I can tell you, I know that the things that he has done have not really comported with the dignity of the office of the president of the United States. And frankly, I think the, uh, the recent revelations uh, regarding the phone call to the president of Ukraine uh, are, are consistent with uh, kind of his behavior over the last uh, couple of years. Uh, and that, again, just makes it challenging, I think, for those that are, are in public service sometimes to, uh, to get behind that. Let me ask you a question. Is dignity in the eye of the beholder? Is dignity a nebulous enough no. or too nebulous a standard for the presidency? Okay, so let me be more clear then. So when I th- say dignity, I think of three litmus tests of dignity. Are your decisions moral, legal, and ethical? Ethical, are you following the rules? Moral, are you, I mean, uh, legal, are you following the law? And moral, are you following what's right? That, in, when brought together, makes things dignified because we're a nation of laws. And, and a nation of laws follows the laws, follows the rules, and in general, recognizing what we think to be right and just follows that. And so uh, that is, you know, a, a better kind of contextual look at what I think of as the dignity of the office. Do things that are moral, legal, and ethical. And if a president falls short of that, by definition, ought that president be impeached? Well, uh, I don't know about impeached, but certainly that president needs to be held accountable. Every public servant who fails to do things that are moral, legal, and ethical ought to be held accountable. You know, it's up to the Congress to decide whether or not uh, they want to push forward with impeachment. But the fact of the matter is, uh, I think there's a lot of things that, uh, that deserve to be looked at and Again, the president or anybody in a position of responsibility in the federal government that doesn't follow those three uh, litmus tests ought to be held accountable for it. Do you believe as a country um, we have taken what used to be a universal standard of dignity, as you defined it, and given it a partisan cast? Yeah, I don't think you can give dignity a partisan cast. But do you think uh, we have as a country? Well, I think we, have, we are going down that road. Uh, again, you know, there are certain things that there, is, there are facts, there are truths that I think are undeniable. Uh, and you may be able to try to spin it if you're on one side of the aisle or the other. But at the end of the day, it's easy to define what is ethical. There are people that lay out our ethical rules. It is easy to understand what is lawful. There are people that lay out our laws. And I think it is relatively easy, or should be, to the average man or woman to understand what is morally right or wrong. When you have, those, when you have that framework, then the, either side of the aisle can debate, it, can debate it, but they're going to have to debate it against the logic of what is written down in the rules and what we know to be right. And do you think there is something unique about this president's description of or relationship with basic facts and basic realities that distorts the country's ability to judge him? I don't know whether it distorts the country's ability to judge him. I do think that uh, he has this kind of loose association with the truth. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, you know, but the country, I think, knows that. I think you talk to those folks that are even Trump supporters, and they know that he is misleading in certain areas. But they are prepared to continue to support him because they see what they think of as the bigger agenda. I write about in my book, in my conversations with many Trump supporters attending more than 70 rallies during the 2016 campaign, that they think he speaks larger truths, right. structural truths about sovereignty or the future of the country or trade deals that have gone awry, the hollowing out of the manufacturing sector, people being forgotten. Those are the larger truths. And they don't, they would tell me, I don't care about these day-to-day things that you always pick on him about. What I care about are these larger 
structural truth. Yeah, Those but, are their words, not mine. Yeah, but, but what I'll offer to you, Major, is having spent time in, in leadership positions over the last 40-some-odd years, I think everybody knows that if you're prepared to tell small lies, then you're probably going to tell big lies as well. Uh, so people that feel like they can make... Uh, you know, make their small lies believable or make those acceptable, I think are generally prepared to go bigger and larger. So uh, I do you find an inherent danger in that? In absolutely, the I do. Absolutely. What's the danger? Well, the danger is uh, we lead the country down a path that no longer is the, this kind of beacon that the world is looking for. So uh, I think I've got a couple of my students in, the, in my LBJ uh, class that are here with us today. There we go. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I talk to them about how do we make decisions. So we do a, a number of national security uh, scenarios where we are in the situation room. And as I lay out how do you make decisions, the first question you have to ask yourself when you are making decisions at the uh, national security level, and I say, look, it doesn't matter whether you're on the National Security Council, the City Council, or the Student Council. The first question you have to ask yourself is, who are we? Who are we as a nation? And from that will flow all of the other decisions you're going to make. So... If we view ourselves as a nation of laws, then we need to follow the laws. If we view ourselves as a nation that are the good guys, the men and women that are prepared to go forward and fight against totalitarianism, to fight against Nazism, to fight against you know, all of the terrorisms and the bad isms out there, and to lay down our life to do that, if that's who we are, then that will determine all the other decisions you make. Uh, if that's not who we are, if we don't think that we are a nation of laws, if we don't think that being moral, legal, and ethical is important, then all the other decisions will flow from that, and I guarantee you they will be bad decisions. I'm going to set you up because we're going to have to take a break here in just a second. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, audience. But I want to tee you up with this question before we go to break. Uh, this is Admiral McRaven. Um, during the campaign, I heard Trump supporters say, to your very last point, who are we? They had a sense that who we were was slipping away. And a common understanding of what America was and it valued was slipping away, and Trump was their best resource to get that back. It was kind of a nostalgic appraisal of what America had been, and they were fearful, if not skeptical, or outright opposed to what they thought it was becoming. I want you to think about that and give me your answer about what that... How do we answer that question? Who are we? And how did the president's campaign in 2016 maybe raise that to a level we had never seen or evaluated before. I'm Major Garrett. We're at the Paramount Theater. Here's my live audience. We're going to hear from one more time at the Texas Tribune Ideas Festival. Back for segment two in just a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. That's me. Welcome back to Austin, Texas Paramount Theater. My live audience, my live audience is with us. At the Texas Tribune Ideas Festival, so indebted to Evan Smith for having us come down here, giving us this live audience and a phenomenal opportunity to have a long discussion with retired Navy Admiral William McRaven. Admiral, I set you up with that question. You said where you are, student council, city council, national security council, the first question when a hard decision comes, who are we? Right. President Trump asked that question. Lots of millions of Americans had a different orientation possibly than those who voted for his opponent. Give me your appraisal of what he laid before the country and what we ought to possibly conclude from that. Yeah, well, first I'll say that I think, uh, you know, parts of the country had some valid reasons for some concerns. You know, it's, 
But this is the nature, the nature of our democracy and our republic is, you know, nobody's ever going to agree with everything a president does. So I think having the, the ability to have the dialogue about what can we do to improve things is all well and good. And we do need to recognize that the president was elected by the people of this country, and therefore we have an obligation to support him until, again, he does things that are not moral, legal, or ethical, and then we need to hold him accountable. Um, you know, in the, uh, in the military, again, we, we swear our allegiance to the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And, that, and, we t- and it is not, for the officers, it is not an allegiance to the President of the United States. It is an allegiance to the Constitution. So when you think about that, it is, respon- it is our responsibility to ensure, again, that we, as military officers, we as a nation, are following the laws as outlined in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and the things that are important to this country. So I don't have any, um, you know, I don't have any concerns about other folks that are on the Trump side feeling like things need to move in a different direction. I think that's all well and good. And if Trump could move them in that direction for the benefit of those folks, there may be some value in that. But again, you have to do that in a way that is consistent with our laws and our Constitution. It's been my observation, Admiral, that in the past 20 years, we have taken political disagreements and sharpened them to a point where we're very willing, some of us, to believe the worst about fellow Americans in ways I don't remember we did when I was growing up. And I think about that in the context of 2016 and the various efforts to interfere, and those interference efforts were abated, uh, abetted. They were weaponized by our own visceral dislike of each other over political terms. Do you share that observation, and do you feel uncomfortable as someone in the military arts seeing military terminology so frequently (laughs) overlaid what are essentially civilian and ought to be civil political disagreements? Yeah, I I think it's easy to to take things today and think that maybe we're at the worst point in time in our history. And, you know, if you go back and, and look over American history over the last 247 years, this is consistent with our republic. Uh, you look at George Washington's second term, mm-hmm. and he was eviscerated yep. by his colleagues, by the press at the time, people slandering him every which way. This was George Washington, right. for goodness sakes. Political parties were actually beginning Political to parties. form. I mean, we had a duel. Partisan tendencies were starting to harden in front of everyone's... <laughs> so, so I think the fact that we are at this juncture, uh, you know, I don't think that it is something new. Uh, but the way you resolve it, uh, I believe, and again, having spent time, you know, I've traveled over 90 countries around the world where, you know, people have different beliefs, uh, different cultures, different approaches to things. And the way you resolve them is you sit down and you build a personal relationship with that person and you find out about them. You find out about their family. You find out about what makes, what motivates them. And when you do that, you find out that we as people really aren't that far apart. Uh, and again, there are evil people in the world. Uh, that, that whose, whose ideology is so corrupt that it needs to be marginalized. But I would offer that the bulk of the people in the world, certainly that I have met, uh, they want a good life for their family. They want their kids to grow up you know, happy and healthy, and uh, they want to have a good education. They want to make a good wage. These are kind of common values uh, that, that I, again, I think you find when you sit down with folks that we're not as far apart as people think. But you have to sit down, and you have to have three cups of tea with them, or in Texas, a beer and barbecue. Uh, you, I mean, you have to sit down and find out who they are. That then, I think, makes the political discourse a lot easier to resolve. I want to shift to your book now, because I want to read something to the audience that 
uh, among the many stories in this book, sea stories, uh, really struck you because it's not a story. It's a description of yourself. As terrible as it sounds, every seal longs for a worthy fight, a battle of convictions, and an honorable war. War challenges your manhood. It reaffirms your courage. It sets you apart from the timid souls and the bench sitters. It builds unbreakable bonds among your fellow warriors. It gives your life meaning. Over time, I would get more than my fair share of war. Men would be lost, innocents would be killed, families would be forever changed. But somehow, inexplicably, war would never lose its allure. To the warrior, peace has no memories, no milestones, no adventures, no heroic deaths, no gut-wrenching sorrow, no jubilation, no remorse, no repentance, and no salvation. Peace was meant for some people, but probably not for me. Yeah, you know, that was a, it was a tough paragraph to write. Uh, it had to be. It, it was, but, uh, but it was cathartic in a lot of ways. So uh, my wife was my first reader on all the chapters, and, and she's very good at... Uh, both the technical parts of the editing and also telling me when, when I'm kind of all screwed up on this thing. And when she read this, uh, this passage, she said, you can't put that in there. You're glorifying war. I said, no, I, I hope I'm not glorifying war. But I think it would also be very disingenuous of me to imply that those of us that are part of the warrior culture, that you know, join the SEALs of the Special Forces of the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, uh, aren't looking for an opportunity to defend what is noble and honorable and, and part of our country. Uh, we join to be those warriors, to be those protectors of our citizens. We want it to be a noble flat fight. We want to be doing things that are honorable. But we also want to make sure that we are the warriors that, uh, that we came into the military to be. And the only way you can find that out is to test yourself on the battlefield. So... While I, I know it is a very uncomfortable passage for a lot of people, I also felt like I couldn't tell you all these stories and somehow pretend that I wasn't excited about going to war, excited about the opportunity to defend the country, excited about the camaraderie that comes with warfare, excited about the challenges that you were going to face. And let me tell you, there are, you know, every single day in combat is challenging because you are losing young men. You are, you know, inadvertently harming civilians. The, the challenges are almost overwhelming. But they are also, there is also this sort of adrenaline that comes with it that drives you to want to be the best you can so that you can save those young troopers, so that you can make sure that the United States isn't attacked, so that you can do your job in a way that the American people will be proud of. Um, and I think that drives every single warrior, man or woman, that signs up. And not to have put that passage in there I think would have been egregious because it would have implied that, uh, that we just all joined up to be, you know, uh, something that we're not, the Boy Scouts or something, that we never want to harm anybody, that we never want to be challenged, and that's just not true. Did you in your military career sense any separation between this warrior culture and the civilian population it served? Yeah, I will tell you, in, in all my time in the military, and I came in in 77, so you know, this is kind of at the end of the Vietnam War, and there was still a little concern, and, and you, you felt a little bit of animosity from the public in general as a result of the, the kind of aftermath of, of Vietnam. But I'll tell you where it all turned around. As strange as it sounds, it was with a bumper sticker. And during Desert Shield and Desert Storm, and I don't know who came up with it, but somebody said, 
we support the troops. That became the bumper sticker. It wasn't we support the war. It was we support the troops. So those people that hated the fact that we were going to war understood that those of us in uniform were doing the nation's bidding. We didn't decide to go to war. But if you're going to go to war, you better be serious about it and you better be ready to win it. That is part of the warrior culture. So those folks that didn't like the decision by Bush 41, that didn't like what we did in, in Iraq and Afghanistan under Bush 43, still could support the troops because they believed, rightfully so, that we were men and women of integrity and doing what we thought was honorable. So I support the troops fundamentally changed the way America looks at their military. Everywhere we go as military men and women, the American public comes out and is grateful for our service. Nothing is more important. That's the voice of Admiral William McRaven. That's my live audience. We're in Austin, Texas at the Texas Tribune Ideas Festival. Back for segment three in just a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. That's me. Here's my live audience. There we are at the historic, legendary Paramount Theater in Austin, Texas, here at the Texas Tribune Ideas Festival. Welcome to The Takeout, Segment 3. Our guest, retired Admiral William McRaven, reading from his book, Sea Stories. Also, he has a new book, or not, came out before that, Make Your Bed. We'll get to that in a second. Everyone should make their bed. Uh, I want to talk to you about Iraq. Uh, and from page 199. I also want to read from your book. Um, This is the chapter about how Saddam Hussein was captured. It's a fascinating story, riveting, page-turner, all that for sure. Thirteen years later, I'm reading from the book, as Iraq remains a troubled nation haunted by ISIS and al-Qaeda and often on the verge of sectarian war, some may ask whether the U.S. effort was worth it. There were no WMD, weapons of mass destruction, And the fracture of Iraqi society caused the death of thousands of innocent people and the loss of over 3,000 American and allied lives. I have no good answer. I have only hope. Really? No good answer? If it was worth it? So in the summer of 2010, we were getting ready to, uh, the decision had been made we were going to pull out of Iraq by January of 2011. And, uh, and I went down to Baghdad, uh, some of my SEALs, we were still conducting operations in Baghdad uh, because every day uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq was still trying to bomb markets and kill people. And so we were trying to find the bomb makers. We were trying to stop those guys that had the vehicle-borne IEDs. But this was, again, five months later, we were going to be out of Iraq. And as I was uh, having kind of a, an all-hands call with the SEALs, a senior chief petty officer, fairly senior SEAL, who'd been in this conflict a long time, kind of raised his hand and said, uh, Admiral WTF, why are we still doing this? What is the point? We're leaving here in five months. What is the point? And it was a valid question. And uh, I said, I gave him the story about a, uh, a World War II Japanese pilot who, over the Pacific, uh, was coming in on an American troop plane. And, uh, and, and he's looking, he sees this American troop plane over the Pacific, and he's, he's going to gun down the American troop plane, and he looks down at his, uh, at his gas gauge, and, and he's getting low on fuel. And the American troop plane knows that the zero is on his tail, and he starts banking through the clouds, and, and the zero is looking for him, looking for him, finally comes out of the clouds, the zero pulls up, and this is a, a Japanese ace with, uh, you know, 60-some-odd kills. He looks at this troop plane, he looks down at his gas gauge and says, ah, i got to break off. So he breaks off. 
And on that plane was a young Navy lieutenant commander named Lyndon Baines Johnson. The reason I tell that story is that you never know what your actions are going to do. So what I told the senior chief was, look, if we go out tonight and we stop a vehicle-borne IED that's going to go into a market in Baghdad and kill 100 people, you have no idea who those 100 people are. One of those people could cure cancer. One of them could find sustainable energy. One of them could be the next president of Iraq and change Iraq. So my point to them was, you don't know. Do your job. Do the best job you can. And when it's time to move out, we will move out. So as I look at Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, I, I do question, was it the right thing to go into Iraq? You know, Afghanistan seems a simpler answer. But at the end of the day, I think it'll be 100 years before we know. And we may never know. We may never know that whether or not, you know, we, we took Saddam Hussein down, and Saddam was brutal to his people. He was brutal to the Kurds. He was, you know, he was about as evil as a person comes. What if he'd have stayed in power? How many more Kurds would have died? And would any of those Kurds have found the cure to cancer, have, you know, taken us to Mars, have done the sort of things we don't know? But I have hope. I have hope that we did, you know, the right thing and that the right thing in the long term will change the world for the better. Sometimes you have to just have hope. Picking up on your answer about Afghanistan, it seems like an easier decision to go in. Clearly it was. There was a proximate cause, yep. legitimate, recognized by the world, etc. Hard to get out. Hard to get out, yeah. And, Why? Uh, well, and I'm not in favor of uh, negotiations with the Taliban. Uh, because? I've, well, I've said it before. I think negotiating with the Taliban uh, is like negotiating with ISIS. And that may not be a perfect analogy, uh, but the fact of the matter is, if we strike a peace deal with the Taliban and we bring American troops out, uh, my guess is within six months to a year, the Taliban will have taken back over Afghanistan. And the people that will suffer the most will be the women of Afghanistan. Uh, and, and all of the blood and treasure that we put into Afghanistan, I think, will be wasted. So if we stay, um, will we lose more young men? Uh, we probably will. More young men and women? We will. Will it cost us billions of dollars more? It probably will. But I think at this point in time, we have an obligation, both a moral obligation and a strategic obligation, to stay there in a certain number, 8,000, 10,000, to maintain the Afghan army so that over time, the central government will get stronger, the Afghan army will get stronger, and maybe in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, we will find that we have an Afghanistan that can stand on its own two feet. Do, um, we, do we need to, A, think about, and possibly as we think about, talk about this differently? We still have this described in the American public as a war, and it is often appended a war that isn't ending. Right. It doesn't feel as if we're at war in, as much as we're in a stasis or peacekeeping operation or maintenance of existing conditions. Right. And if we talked about it differently, if we thought structurally about it differently, might we not then summon the national will to stay, for example, as we have done right. in South Korea? That is a maintenance of a situation. Right. It's not an offensive or defensive. It's just maintaining what is. Ought we not to... I'm asking you. Yeah. Should we think about Afghanistan and, more importantly, talk about Afghanistan differently in, ter in terms of a yeah. war or maintenance of what we, what, what's been achieved? Yeah, I think we absolutely should. And, and it, it would be very controversial, but when you think of what we are trying to do in Afghanistan now, it is to contain the Taliban. When you think about how we're dealing with terrorist organizations around the world, whether it is in Yemen or Somalia or Boko Haram in Africa, we are trying to contain them. Nobody likes the term containment because it has this sort of, you know, Cold War approach to it, how we contained the Soviet Union. 
But at the end of the day, uh, we are trying to make sure that the terrorist organizations, even though they have the intent, do not have the capability and do not have the reach. So if you're Boko Haram in Nigeria, uh, you may have the intent to do bad and ill will against the United States or our allies, but do you have the capability and do you have the reach? Do you have the ability to do that? Well, how do we stop that? We contain them by working with the Nigerians, by working with our African counterparts. And the same thing, I think, in Somalia uh, with, um, uh, with uh, al-Shabaab and uh, you know, al-Qaeda in, uh, in Afghanistan and, and Iraq. You know, we're now at this point where it is about kind of containing the threat. And that's an evolution even for you. You were asked to write the first counterterrorism strategy. I was. It's not as much of an evolution as you think. I will tell you, when I first ra- I was the prime author on it, we had a lot of folks, but we talked about containment at the time. But politically, it was just un- unsellable. You know, it was, well, we can't contain terrorists. We're going to have Sounds to destroy them. Right. You're going to have to destroy them and defeat them. And I think that is a laudable goal, but I think what the, the public needs to understand is this is a generational fight. In fact, it may be a multi-generational fight. I had some great advice from, uh, from a, a Harvard Ph.D. who was working at the White House at the time, 32-year-old Harvard Ph.D., and, and he comes to me as I'm writing this National Strategy for Combating Terrorism, and he says, you're thinking about this all wrong. And I'm thinking, yeah, I mean, I've got 25 years in the military here. This <laughs> young, young kid, he's trying to tell me I'm, I've got this all wrong. And he was right. And he said, look, he said, I worked uh, in New York, uh, and I worked with FEMA in New York, I, I think he was, and he said, we realized that in New York, we were always going to have fires. There are going to be fires. He says, so when you think of terrorism, you think of it like fires. So what do you have to do in fires? Well, you have to have smoke detectors. So you have to have something that you know, sniffs out the fire when it's happening. You have to have you know, fire escapes. You have to have education about fire. You have to have a fire brigade. But you're never going to eliminate fires. So figure out how to you know, train people to deal with fires, to have the right for terrorism, the intelligence network out there that is the, you know, the smoke detectors, uh, the fire brigades that are the counterterrorism units, the partnerships with our allies that are just like partnerships with cities. So think of it like a fire. And when you think of terrorism like a fire, um, we're never going to be rid of terrorism because there are always people out there who have ideologies that want to hurt America and the West. And so we need to figure out how we have our sensors as far forward as possible, and how we react to that as quickly as possible. That's the voice of Admiral McRaven. That's why I love this show, because you can have a conversation like that and have a whole different appraisal of what we've thought about and talked about. We have segment four coming up. I'm Major Garrett. We're at the Paramount Theater in Austin, Texas. That's my live audience here at the Texas Tribune Ideas Festival. Back in just a second. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Let me introduce my live audience. I want to hear from you folks. Legendary Paramount Theater, downtown Austin, Texas, part of the Texas Tribune Ideas Festival. Deeply indebted to Evan Smith for inviting our show down here. We're so glad to be with you. So glad to have this opportunity. So glad for you to catch the vibe of our show and have a lengthy conversation that I've thoroughly enjoyed. We're going to continue with retired Admiral William McRaven. Uh, In your book, Sea Stories, you'd kind of structure it like a, um, 
like an hour-long television drama. You save the grabber for the end. What's the grabber? Oh, Osama bin Laden. That's the grabber at the end of the book. I don't want to dwell too much on that because it's a pretty thoroughly well-known story, but I want you to tell the audience here and in my audience what's the most important takeaway from the intelligence, the execution, the aftermath of that mission. Yeah, I think the most important takeaway, uh, you know, when, when you look back at it, you know, the, the courage uh, of the, you know, the special operations guys, both the Army aviators and the SEALs that went in, you know, it's easy to kind of look back on it now and say, well, everybody got back safely and, and nobody was harmed. But, of course, we didn't know that going in. And uh, there was always concern that the entire complex was rigged with demolition, that bin Laden would be sleeping in a suicide vest, and all these guys, you know, had extensive combat experience. But that was a, a real concern, a valid concern, and so, you know, first, I would offer you, you take that away, along with the fact that this, I think, will go down as one of the, you know, great uh, operations, intelligence operations in CIA history. But I'd give you two more takeaways. Uh, first was uh, the decision by the president of the United States, President Obama, to go get bin Laden, I think, was one of the more courageous decisions in, in modern political history. Recognizing, <laughs> recognizing that we did not know it was bin Laden. So there was always this uh, debate, uh, and I was in about six or seven meetings with the president as we went from January through April, um, and there was always this debate every time we'd have a meeting, well, they'd turn to the CIA, is it bin Laden? Well, Mr. Pre we think it's bin Laden, but you know, we're just not sure. Uh, and this went all the way till my last day, and I remember the day before, or the, the week before my last meeting, the president had asked uh, the director of the National Counterterrorism Center, Mike Leiter, said, I want you to kind of review CIA's intelligence, kind of red team it, and then, uh, and then come back and, uh, and let me know. So we're at the last meeting, the last meeting I was at, and he turns to Mike Leiter and he says, well, Mike, uh, you know, you've done the review, what do you think? A little bit of a pause, and I can see Mike's a little uncomfortable because he's got director of CIA, Leon Panetta's in there, and Michael Morell's in there. And he says, well, Mr. President, we've, uh, you know, we've reviewed the intelligence, and we think the chance that it's bin Laden is anywhere between 60% and 40%. And when he said 40%, I'm thinking, well, this mission's over. I mean, who in the world is going to authorize some guys to fly 162 miles from Afghanistan, you know, through the mountains of Pakistan to a, a built-up uh, urban area in Pakistan that was, the compound was a couple of miles from their West Point, a couple of miles from a major infantry battalion, about a mile from a, uh, a major police station. And oh, by the way, they have nuclear weapons. Uh, and we didn't know it was bin Laden. So I leave and uh, I head to Afghanistan. I told the president, well, sir, if, uh, you, know, if you make the decision, I'll, I'll be, we'll be ready to go. If not, uh, we still got bad guys in Afghanistan. I'll get back to work. Well, I get a call on Friday night by, uh, from Leon Panetta, and he says, hey, the president's made the decision to go. I'm thinking, wow. I mean, that is an incredibly courageous decision. And I tell folks, irrespective of what side of the aisle you're on, my experience as the junior guy in those meetings, as a three-star admiral, uh, the junior guy was that there was never any rancor. Uh, there was never any discussion of politics. This wasn't about, well, Mr. President, if this goes south, you're going to be like Jimmy Carter. Uh, you'll be a one-term president. We didn't have those discussions. It's not that the discussions weren't heated. It's not that they, you know, the folks didn't challenge each other. But they were all trying to do what was right for the country. The president wanted to do what was right for the nation, irrespective of his personal and political risk. And, uh, and so he calls me on Saturday, uh, and say, we're, we're chatting. He says, uh, well, Bill, what do you think? I said, well, Mr. President, and I'm in Afghanistan. I said, well, Mr. President, if he's there, we'll get him. If not, we'll come home. 
The problem with the come home scenario, which I had briefed the president, was if the SEALs get on the ground and somebody comes out with a gun and everybody in Pakistan and Afghanistan has got guns, comes out with a gun, it's not going to go too well for that guy. And if somebody else comes out with a gun, the SEALs will kill him. And if they make their way into the building and they engage somebody on the first floor and on the second floor and they get to the third floor and it turns out the guy we thought was bin Laden is nothing but a tall Pakistani, this will be a disaster of epic proportions. I didn't say that, but the president knew that because I had told him that, that, hey, the SEALs are going to engage whoever's there. So you think about the magnitude of that decision, uh, the risk the president was taking, but because he felt it was the right thing to do for the nation, he made that decision. Um, so I would say of, of all the takeaways, uh, you know, that was, for me, that was probably the most important one. Uh, now, again, we got great intelligence. The other thing was that we thought bin Laden at that point in time was probably a figurehead. In fact, he was still involved in the operations, was still planning operations against America and our allies. So I think that surprised us. Central to the book and central to so many of your answers has been the professionalism, the capability, uh, the tenacity of special operators. Uh, I don't need to tell you because I know you pay close attention to this. There have been uh, some problems within the SEALs. And you have an admiral now who said there is a problem with the culture. What's the problem? What's going wrong? Yeah, one, I, uh, I commend Admiral Green, Colin Green, who is the commander of Naval Special Warfare, uh, because we have had problems. So when you have a problem, you don't sweep it under the rug. You do what the Navy has done for 240-plus years. You address the problem, and you generally address it pretty aggressively. So you see what uh, Admiral Green has done. He sent out a message to the entire force. He is meeting with the entire force. He has said, look, this is the standard that the American people expect of us. And we have fallen well short of that standard on a number of occasions. Tactically, we're still at this, at this level. But from a, from a character standpoint, uh, we have fallen well short. And the American people expect more. And we need to rise, raise our standards again to make sure that we are the, the good guys the American people expect is, us to is it, is it fatigue? Is it lack of internal discipline? Is it a sense of maybe this WTF, what are we doing? Right. What is it? I think it may be a combination of all those things. I think that's why Admiral Green is looking into it. I don't know that you're ever going to be able to say it's this one thing. Clearly, you have most of these guys have been fighting for 18 years, the longest period stretch of combat in the history of warfare. So think about it, in the history of warfare. So you, you go back and you think of the Roman legions, most of the Roman legions, you, you hear about these, you know, wars after war. Well, most of those folks were farmers. They would go fight and they'd come back. You know, they were not always professional soldiers. Now, those that were weren't in every battle you see in Rome. You think about World War I or World War II. These lasted for, you know, three, four years. Eighteen years, and these guys have been in combat for 18 years. That's not an excuse. And that's what Admiral Green is trying to point out. I got it. We've been in combat for a long time. If you think we're going to use that as an excuse, you're mistaken. Now, will that have some bearing on, on the conduct? It may. We need to check that out. But the way you make sure people do the right things is you have the standards and you hold people accountable. And again, Admiral Green has done that. He's, he's holding people accountable. That's the voice of retired Admiral William McRaven. We are at the end of segment four. Live audience here at the Paramount Theater in Austin, Texas. To my radio audience, God love you. Stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. That's segment five. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. For more from this week's conversation, download the Takeout Outtake Especial Tuesday morning, wherever you get your podcasts. The Takeout is produced by Arden Farin. 
Tatiana Krachenko, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, and Ellie Watson. CBSN production by Alex Zuckerman, Eric Susanen, and Grace Seegers. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, visit TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.